1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of When Movements, Anchor Parties, Electoral Alignments in American History, published by Princeton University Press this year. The author is Daniel Schlossman. I hope that you really enjoy this interview that I did with him today. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, I am with Daniel Schlossman, who is the author of When Movements, Anchor Parties, Electoral Alignments in American History. Daniel's book is published by Princeton University Press this year. Daniel, how are you doing today?
0: Very well. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. Glad, very glad to have you on. This is a book that uh, I enjoyed a lot. It, it uh, connects to things that I work on. Um, before we get to all the interesting stuff you have to say, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, where are you now? Where where have you been in the past?
0: So I'm now an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Having arrived here after many, many years in Massachusetts, the most relevant bits of which for this book were the decade that I spent as a busman's holiday doing party politics, a bit in my, uh, on my own in Massachusetts. I was the chairman of the Democratic City Committee in Cambridge for a while, and so um, I can't say that this is this, this book is not a memoir. This book is not about local politics. It's about national politics. It's about social movements, but. In a sense, this is also a book that's about how party politics can be used to make change. And that's where it comes from biographically and intellectually.
1: Yeah, well, maybe we have a memoir coming from you in the future. We I will can't imagine why
0: anyone would want to read about the conflicts of the Cambridge Democratic City Committee in the 2000s. But uh, if they do, I could I could s- supply all sorts of spicy stories.
1: Well, we probably have at least one Acquisitions editor listening and so you know how to get in touch with uh, Daniel if that seems interesting. Until that book comes out, we we have your current book which has plenty of interesting things to to talk about particularly in light of what's going on uh, on on the day that that we are recording. Um so so let's let's get into this. Um you, you know, you've done such an interesting job of covering a lot of historical ground. Before we get to that um, and, and these really interesting uh, four different cases. Let's let's talk a little bit about how you are distinguishing between the party and the social movement. Uh, what are the main dividing lines? And and have those dividing lines been the same over time bet- between the party and the social movement? Tell us just sort of uh, uh, about these two.
0: I'm looking. Uh, social movements are the actors from below who are trying to change the political system in a very basic way and social movements across American history have come up with the same dilemma, namely that if they want to make basic change, they've got to influence politics and if they want to influence politics, they've got to do so through the dominant coalitions that are structuring our politics, namely the parties. And in turn, all through history, there are folks inside the parties who are very, very pragmatic whose interests are winning reelection and whether they are politicians themselves or the interest backing them, they want the social movement inside the party if they're going to be able to continue to win elections. And if they can't, they don't. So in a sense, although there's difference over time, what I'm pointing to is an essential similarity in the ways that movements that we wouldn't ordinarily think of together. From the late 19th century all the way to the present, have this same dilemma, namely, how do we approach the party system? And those movements are initially outside the party system, and then they face a choice. How do we attack this party system? And then the party faces a choice. How do we embrace or repel the movement? And they they resolve that choice in different ways, depending on the different parameters over time. But in a sense, the book is meant to be uncomfortable to say to various movements, you're not alone. This is not the first time we've been here. And that lesson, which, which people who look at history like to tell, I've told yet again.
1: Yeah, let's let's talk about your cases, because as you suggest, there there are lots of social movements, probably most of them that, that we don't even know about today for some of the very reasons that you, you raise in the book. But, but before we get to the, the cases themselves, well, talk to us a little bit about, how you chose these these four what what is the 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 approach that you did that you took to uh, making your case selection
0: so the primary two cases in the book are two movements that became the centerpieces of major party coalition through the 20th century and they are the labor movement which joined the democratic party starting in the 1930s and then the christian right joining together with the republican party since the 70s and then I'm also looking at three other movements that don't achieve what labor and the Christian right did, and they are two movements that couldn't get inside parties. First, the populists in the 1890s, and then 1880s and 1890s, and then the anti-war movement in the 1960s, and they essentially fall apart before they can make this kind of alliance happen. And the last one is uh, the. Abolitionist movement, not in its primary phase, but after the Civil War. I'm looking only at a movement that gets inside a political party, but can't stay inside a political party, and so on the one hand, I wanted to choose cases that were illuminating for why things happened for the two primary cases that didn't happen, because there wasn't a stable majority inside a party that wanted alliance with a movement that had its act together. Um, so there's a tense in which they are, they are chosen by contrast. The other one is that I wanted to look at really important periods in American political history and reinterpret them as the stories of parties and movements. So a generation ago, political scientists would talk about realignments, and we had this idea, Walter Dean Burnham being the most famous exponent of it, that there were certain critical elections and that voters magically created new electoral coalitions that that, um, lasted for generations. And I think that idea has now been well and rightly buried. But there was a real insight in what Burnham was saying, and that is that there were hinge points in American electoral history when very important ideas have been included in and excluded from the party system. And the key ingredient to all that is the social movement, that social movements got inside party systems, or didn't and stayed inside party systems or didn't. So there's both an attempt to to illuminate patterns across cases and particularly to make sense of the differences among these the primary cases and some others, and a way to tell the story of American electoral history and not just tell it chronologically, but to tell it as a story about movements and parties, which is why the book doesn't move chronologically over time. It moves through the process of alliance from when movements are first Approaching parties to whether or not they achieve a long-running stable alliance or not.
1: Now, I didn't know nearly enough before reading your book about the Christian conservative movement, despite the fact that I I I lived very close to a couple of its starting points. I lived very close to Lynchburg, Virginia, for a little while. I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about what you learned uh, about where they came from, where this Christian right, Christian conservative movement came from. Uh, you know what they were fighting for, and and how they managed to embed themselves so successfully in the Republican Party. What did I learn? It's hard to remember <laughs>
0: what I where right, right. I started. Uh, <laughs> I would say a few things. The first is that Christian conservatives got started not over abortion, which is the issue we think of most as the Christian right issue, but over taxes. And taxes in a very particular way that had to do with school desegregation. The Carter administration, after uh, starting in 1969, uh, under the next administration, once the, the court gives them the okay for some of this, uh, courts begin attacking white school systems in the South that have been recalcitrant desegregators. And one of the ways that white parents respond is by opening what are called SEG academies, so-called SEG academies, new religious schools affiliated with churches, where white students can go when they're leaving the public school system. And the Carter administration, the Nixon administration, does a little bit against. And the Carter administration decides to get serious, and they promulgate, or they they propose regs from the IRS that would require uh, Christian schools that opened at the same time as desegregation in local public schools and that don't have uh, any kind of racial balance, that they lose their tax exemptions. And that means that the churches affiliated with them would lose their tax exemptions. And this is the state through the taxing power going to the heart of religion. And evangelicals north and south, remember going to the border states here, Delaware. Joe Biden is an anti-busing person at the time. Is implicated as well as Alabama. And they fight this, they organize, they mobilize. Carter administration plan fails. In turn, and this is what hits Jerry Falwell. Jerry Falwell ran one of these SEC academies. He'd lose his tax exemption. His kids uh, were going to the SEC academy. Paul Weirich, the um, canny conservative operative who's looking for new coalitions to dethrone the New Deal, he realizes this is an enormously influential uh, mobilizing issue, and he creates, with Jerry Falwell, a moral majority out of it, so that the initial spark of this is about race and taxes much more than social issues. They then, things like abortion come in, just the first thing I'd say. The second thing more generally, and this is something that doesn't come through in the book because I learned it was not non-event, is to understand American religion. Don't look to doctrine. The key to the Christian right is not theology. The key is issue mobilization in waves of moral concern about the country. So you often see both the Christian right talking about what the Bible tells them to do, and then their lefty opponents saying we've unmasked their theology. I think they're both on the wrong track. Look instead, and this is what I do do, at how different religious leaders are mobilizing networks and then engaging those networks politically. That's the story.
1: And and what about their success? We we you you contrast not at the exact same time, but, you, but there's a bit of a contrast with the anti war movement um that we think of really as such an iconic part of the nineteen sixties, but but that didn't have the same level of success as as the Christian conservative movement. So what happened that prevented that social movement from aligning with the Democratic Party? To the same extent that the Christian right has with the Republican Party.
0: The Christian right was organized and the anti-war movement wasn't. That, the anti- that after 68, the, the anti-war movement splinters apart into all these different groups from the hardest fringe of the new left and SDS and things like that, down through the MOBE and the new bubbles and the Coalition for the new majority. So there's not a real organized group. By the time George McGovern wins the nomination as an anti-war candidate in 72, he's not dealing with the social movement. He's just scooping up, and then he loses, of course, the remnants of what was the movement. And in turn, there's not an organized movement that's saying within the Democratic Party, we should not be fighting foreign wars. Sometimes Democrats are more hawkish than at other times in the last generation, but there's not a political organization. The Christian right manages this to sustain that. And one of the paradoxes is that a lot of their groups fall apart, too. Moral majority falls apart. A group that Tim LaHaye, later known as the author of the Left Behind novels, uh puts together called Active, and from the 1984 election falls apart. The Christian Coalition falls apart. But because they have organization through direct mail networks they've established, through leadership networks they've established, they're able to reassemble themselves.
1: And the anti-war movement can't do that. Now, it's very hard to talk about this uh, during this this uh, turmoil in Washington and, and and not try to get your sense of things. So uh, make sense of what's been going on in Washington over the last couple of weeks as, as the Republican Party tries to figure out how to choose someone as speaker. Um, is there a way that you can put this into the the findings from, from your book? You, you talk a little bit about the Tea Party in, in your book. Um, uh, Could you help us make sense of what's going on? So,
0: Republicans are, in a sense, in an unenviable position because they've got very bitter division within their ranks over what direction to, to go to elect a speaker, and they need 218 members of the caucus to agree because unless the Democrats kick in, they have to find consensus. The key is that the Tea Party is now in the party, and they're influential, and they can't make these members vanish. Uh, So what I would say is that the new politics of the Republican Party look like other kinds of factional politics you've seen over time, the Democrats in the era when uh, they were divided between northern liberals and southern conservatives in the 1940s and 50s. But they And they have to figure out how to focus only on the areas of limited disagreement and keep off the agenda the areas of disagreement. That's the task of political leadership inside a party, mollifying all of the different elements. John Boehner was not – Sam Rayburn was up to that task and was able to do that. John Boehner was not. Uh, so it's a story about agenda control. It's also, I think the story that a lot of the movements I'm talking about have been much more distant from the minutia of day-to-day parliamentary politics than the Tea Party. One of the things that makes the Tea Party distinctive is that they are really interested in a lot of the particulars that make Washington work and are dissatisfied with the sort of compromises that happen under divided government. And that's what makes them – Different from other movements that have had a very grand, in a lot of cases, much more radical even than the Tea Party, whether the left or the right, sense of how government should operate in the large, but have not been so obsessed with tactics in the particular.
1: So, at the beginning, you you weren't willing to commit to uh, be working on your memoir. What else are you working on, if if not that? Do you have another? book project that that you are starting now? or, yeah, so, or so are, at,
0: at one point during the financial crisis, I uh, thought to myself, Schlossman, why are you wasting your time on these social movements? Why don't you look at the folks who are actually running the country? And um, on the one hand, I think that belittles the amount of influence that, that these movements have had on our politics over time. And on the other hand, it leads me into a book project about center-left parties and finance in the U.S. and U.K. asking why the Democrats and the New New Democrats in the United States and new labor in the United Kingdom joined together with uh, finance in the 1970s and 80s, deregulated, and in turn, what difference that made. Why Why we got the center-left politics we got, and the rise of Jeremy Corbyn has complicated this project in ways I don't quite have an answer to yet. But <laughs> right? I think there, you know, there were real similarities on both sides of the Atlantic in some very important processes that created a model of center-left politics. It was really different from either New Deal liberalism or post-war British Keynesianism, why that happened. And again, it's the same set of questions. Who has influence inside parties? How do parties decide who their group influencers are? What do those group influencers get out of the deal? What do the parties get out of the deal? But with a comparative focus on a different set of actors who are trying to influence the parties.
1: Yeah, the, the current book is When Movements Anchor Parties, electoral Alignments in American History, published by Princeton University Press this year. Daniel, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you.